CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J Bonus Interview is brought to you in part by the Chicago Reader and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it is Tuesday, December 1st, 2020. Of course, it's a podcast. You can listen to it anytime. To give you some grounding on what was going on in the world when we did this interview, I will now read to you a headline that I discovered on the online uh, news site thehill.com and the headline reads and i quote <clears throat> netflix record breaking the queen's gamut boost sales of chess sets books kids all over america go my i want a chess set just like the girl in queen's gamut that's a perfect transition if i must say so to myself uh to the topic of conversation what i have with my distinguished guests as i do in all ben Jarowski shows i ask my distinguished guests to introduce him or herself so distinguished guest introduce yourself hey i'm bill horberg uh, i am from chicago and i'm in the bonus round on the ben Jarowski show Yes, you are. Uh, Bill Horberg from Chicago. Uh, he's like Jenny from the block, only he's Bill from Chicago. And Bill, before we get started, Bill is the producer of The Queen's Gambit. I just want to give a shout out to Bill's mom, Joan. Joan, I love you. God bless you. And uh, she was the one who brokered this deal to get Bill on the show. Uh, so with producers like a Joan, I can't go wrong, uh, Bill Horberg. So you got a great mom, in my humble opinion. Yeah, I've never had an agent, but now I do. <laughs> Mama Joan, looking out for you, Bill. <laughs> All right, so uh, Queen's Gambit is an obsession of mine. Uh, your mom may have told you that, Bill. Uh, I've watched it. Mm, well, I can't say I've watched each episode twice, but I've watched uh, several of the episodes twice. Uh, I don't know how it captured my imagination. I'm not a great chess fan, but it's, I'm not alone. Obviously, it's, uh, I think, the number one movie uh, of the year for Netflix. So why don't you just uh, start like by trying to explain from the producer's <laughs> perspective? Because, of course, you knew this was going to happen when you uh, produced it. Uh, yeah, how this in, the, in, the, in the 20 years that it took me to get it made, I you know, was confident that uh, it would be the all-time uh, viewed limited series on Netflix. Um, so this book was published in the mid-80s. Uh, Walter Tevis, a fantastic writer. Uh, you guys might know him as the author of The Hustler, um, The Man Who Fell to Earth. Um, he didn't write a ton of books, but uh, many of the things he did write were actually uh, put on the screen. Uh, I was a huge Hustler fan growing up. But I, I wasn't aware of The Queen's Gambit until the author, Michael Andache, uh, who wrote The English Patient, uh, hit me to it. And that was probably 20 years ago. Uh, and Andache's no slouch. So when he said this was a book that he reads every couple years to remember how to write, uh, that made a deep impression on me. And I 
ran out and read it and loved it and uh, thought, wow, how come nobody's made this uh, as a movie? And I started to chase down the rights and found out that, lo and behold, uh, an old friend of mine, a, a, a wonderful Scottish man who was a screenwriter, uh, probably most famous as the writer of the great uh, Don't Look Now, uh, kind of classic horror film from the 70s. Uh, he owned this book and he'd been uh, himself as a producer laboring to get it made. He graciously invited me to join forces with him. And we spent a good part of the aughts uh, running around with different uh, filmmakers uh, trying to find financing. But it was a bridge too far, Ben. Um, you know, it, it wasn't the uh, most inexpensive movie to make, given how many locations it's in and the period that it's set in. And, you know, in the in the mainstream marketplace, the perception was just, you know, young girl, orphan, chess, uh, not commercial. And um, even at that time, I had given it to Scott Frank, uh, who's an old uh, old buddy of mine from my Paramount days, and he loved it. Um, and we went around a couple places, but we just couldn't crack the code, honestly. Uh, and in my mind, it, it really took the whole advent of streamers and this brand new landscape of you know kind of uh, peak television, let's call it. You know, just uh, great opportunities to make long form more novelistic uh, stories uh, for uh, streaming services. And Scott had done Godless and had a good experience with Netflix and they wanted to continue the relationship. And he called me up and said, hey, you know, Queen's Gambit, I, I still love that. Uh, you know, is it available? Could we do that? I think maybe we could set it up at Netflix. So uh, it was a long, long journey to get to this place. So, Bill, help me out here. Uh, I've never produced a movie, obviously, and I've never watched a producer in operation. So here we are in the O's, early, like 2003. You got this book that's uh, over 20 years old, uh, about a period of time that is even further back. So what's the pitch you're making to people? You're trying to get them to commit their money to back your film. So what's the pitch that you make? Well, I think it was pretty filmmaker-driven and story-driven. And um, there's something about this book. I mean, uh, Tevis is just an amazing craftsman. And on the first page, you love this girl. You're totally kind of hooked into her circumstance. And you can't stop turning the page, you know, wanting her to be okay. You know, it's a real story of survival as well as a sports narrative in its way. Um, and so, you know, in Hollywood speak, it was kind of rocky with chess is, you know, what you were trying to get people to buy into in terms of its, you know, potential to hit an audience. And, you know, remember when Rocky was made, that was a complete sleeper and nobody knew who Stallone was. And, you know, it took the world by storm. So, you know, we were trying to, uh, wrap ourselves in that kind of, uh, uh, you know, commercial legacy. But, you know, we, we, we were shucking and jiving and dancing as fast as we could, but, you know, we just, we couldn't get it, uh, we couldn't get it sold. 
When you said Rocky with chess, uh, that would sum up the stereotypical pitch that uh, you could imagine someone making. Uh, is it actually like that? Do people actually say, all right, you got to think Rocky, now make it a girl playing chess. Do you actually say that in a pitch? Or is it a little more sophisticated and nuanced than that? Well, <laughs> it's both, Ben. You know, uh, I, I would say, you know, the mentality in Hollywood is certainly – uh, driven by, you know, looking at comparisons and past performance. Uh, so it's a little bit like the racetrack in that regard, you know. Uh, all the money guys have their racing form and they're looking at everybody's track record and, uh, you know, wondering what to bet on. So there is a little bit of, you know, kind of 101 uh, you know, in fact, my first year at Paramount, I made the mistake of comparing my movies to movies that hadn't made money. And one of the senior executives kind of took me aside after the uh, meeting. He said, hey, dude, you know, 101, if you're going to compare, you got to compare to something that's a hit. You know, you can't compare <laughs> to something that's, uh, you know, you're shooting yourself in the foot. So, um, yeah, I mean, you're, you're always selling uh, in some weird way, uh, I've, you know, rationalized it in my mind uh, that it's quite simple, uh, but in its simplicity, there's endless permutations, meaning at the end of the day, you need a script, you need a filmmaker, you need an actor, and you need the money. And that's it. You know, it's yeah. like you got to fill those four boxes. And it's pretty easy to get three out of four in almost any combination, you know, you can have a script with an interesting director and an actor, no money. I've had money in director and script and a project we couldn't cast. Uh, I've had, you know, money, director and cast and the script never really got solved. So, um, you know, you just got to get those four cherries to line up in order to uh, get a payday. You know, pardon my ignorance as a guy looking at it from the outside, but it seems to me that the one element, one, the one ingredient of the broth that you just laid out would be the money. That's absolutely crucial. So I figure once you get the money, you can make anything. It may not be a good movie, but you can make it. So am I right about that? The money is kind of the hardest thing to raise. Well, but you only get the money through the package, right? I mean, nobody's writing you a blank check to go do whatever you want to make. So, you know, the money uh, almost always is accessed by the combination of what we call elements that you uh, assemble. Um, you know, unless you're a billionaire and you're funding a slate of films and you're, you know, kind of uh, just deciding to invest. But even then, you know, you're going to uh, try to curate where, where, what you invest in and uh, build a slate and have a... Uh, some diversity of the, the product you're trying to make. I mean, I, I worked for several years for a wonderful man named Sidney Kimmel, who's a billionaire from Philadelphia, and he was funding a, a financing and production company to make independent films. And, you know, we did a bunch of great movies. Uh, Lars and the Real Girl was one, and uh, The Kite Runner was another one. Um, but it's a tough, tough business. I mean, all all the cliches that you hear are, are true. Do you spend uh, an inordinate amount of time on the telephone talking to people? Uh, 
I certainly have uh, uh, stretches of my life. Yeah, I mean, when I was an executive at Paramount, uh, the phone sheet was an uh, intimidating part of my day. You know, certainly if you're close to talent or close to the money, uh, that's where the heat is, is the expression. Uh, and, you know, you're, you're going to be inundated with uh, material and, and ideas because, you know, you're in a position to uh, get someone's project made. And there's a lot, lot more projects out there than there are, you know, funds to make them or slots to program them or, or eyeballs to watch them. Uh, you've made now reference twice, uh, two references to things you've done in the past. Why don't we just back up uh, and give, give folks a sense of where you come from. Uh, as I may have said at the top of the show, Bill is a native of Chicago, born and raised. Why don't you talk a little bit about being a kid in Chicago and developing a love uh, for movies uh, from growing up in Chicago? Yeah, I was the guy who was going down to the Parkway Cinema, uh, the Grindhouse, uh, you know, we used to go there and watch every B movie that came along every weekend. Uh, I'd take the bus downtown. I mean, you know, you could only see movies on uh, TV or on the big screen. And, you know, there was all the, the big palaces, the woods, the Oriental, the Roosevelt, uh, State Lake. Uh, I'll never forget going to see Cooley High, a movie that was filmed in Chicago that I love. Uh, when it premiered at the State Lake, there were about 1,500 people there. The balcony was full, and everybody was singing along to the Temptations, My Girl. You know, it was like a movie uh, rock concert <laughs> kind of event. And, you know, movies occupied that space in our lives. Uh, certainly, you know, I'm a boomer, later boomer. And, um, you know, they were kind of our cultural mirror. Uh, there was no social media, there were no DVDs, there was no home video, uh, blockbuster. Uh, so I, I was a bit of a, you know, passionate film goer. Uh, and then, Ben, I went to music school in Boston for a couple of years at the Berkeley College of Music. And there just was a huge scene there. You know, this was mid-70s of all of these theaters that showed old movies, classic films, foreign films, uh, all night, you know, 24-hour uh, uh, film festivals. And, you know, when I was done practicing, uh, I just found myself going, you know, to attend uh, all these films. And uh, some of my best friends were running the Film Society at uh, Tufts University. And I would hang out with them and, you know, 16 millimeter prints would be coming in and out of the front door. So that was the atmosphere uh, I was living in, uh, kind of a hothouse of cinema. Um, and when I left uh, school and moved back to Chicago, I had this epiphany that there just wasn't really anything like that happening locally. Uh, the Clark Cinema had been a place downtown in the 50s, 60s, and they showed old movies, but it was a real uh, tough place to go. I mean, it was a super grindhouse kind of environment. Um, so my best friend, Albert Berger, and I had uh, an idea uh, that turned into a reality, and we reopened the Sandberg Theater, which was on Dearborn and Division, and started running it as a kind of a Boston-style uh, repertory 
movie house uh, showing, you know, Hitchcock and Truffaut and uh, science fiction films and uh, documentaries. Um, we had some great premieres there. Uh, Ebert and Siskel used to come out and hang out uh, often. And um, so that was my way into a career that I never really had imagined for myself. Um, I was kind of just making it up as I went along, but coming out of this couple years of running my own business and being an entrepreneur and being in exhibition, uh, I met a lot of people on the distribution side and started to think about, you know, whether there might be a path for me to actually be trying to make some of these films that I was uh, watching and loving. By the way, for what it's worth, I remember that movie theater very well. I saw To Be or Not To Be. I think that's the last um, movie I may have seen there. It's a Jack Benny comedy. I don't know if you were running it then. You must have been because they were showing old movies. That movie's from like the 30s or 40s. Yeah, we definitely were. And um, we, we, went, we left it, uh, I want to say, 81. And then it, it did run for about another year or so under another management and then it was torn down uh now it's a walgreens yeah uh devolution of society on the north side of chicago in my humble opinion uh so from there you did you go out to hollywood bill and, and make your way into business i didn't immediately go uh i i had about four years where i would say i was trying to invent the wheel uh, I was one of those guys who printed up business cards, you know, that said William Horberg producer, but I, I hadn't really produced anything. But I kind of decided I was going to somehow will myself into it. And, um, <clears throat> I didn't really want to move out to L.A. at that point. I thought, you know, if I could f figure out some way to do this uh, it, from Chicago, you know, that would be the best of all worlds. And um, I stumbled into a few things. I, I, I ended up getting involved with a group of people uh, who got the rights to do uh, live uh, concerts from Chicago Fest. Um, I mean, not live. We were recording, videotaping the live performances at Chicago Fest. And so uh, we did Cheap Trick uh, live from Chicago Fest. It was one of the first kind of big uh, concert events on MTV, uh, which was just coming around then. Those guys were all from Chicago, uh, John Sykes and Bob Pittman. And then I did a whole series on the blues, which was just heaven for me. We did Muddy Waters' uh, last live film performance and uh, Junior Wells and Buddy Guy and, uh, you know, Mighty Joe Young and Albert King. And, you know, that was just... I look back now and I, I feel so lucky that I got to, you know, <clears throat> preserve uh, some of those legendary uh, performers. And then I ended up uh, trying my hand at screenwriting. Uh, I optioned a couple of books that I got other people's to, to write. And, you know, I was really just hustling and trying to see if I could figure out a way to get anything made. And uh, lo and behold, two of the books that I optioned ultimately did get made. Uh, one was a book by Chester Himes, the great uh, black writer uh, called The Rage in Harlem. It became a movie with uh, Forrest Whitaker and Danny Glover. 
it was one of Harvey Weinstein's really early movies. It was just at the beginning of Miramax. And then a book called Miami Blues uh, by a wonderful writer named Charles Williford uh, became a movie at Orion. Uh, Jonathan Demme was a producer on it. And Fred Ward and Alec Baldwin starred in it. So by 86, I, you know, had a few notches on my belt that made me think, God, if I'm really going to go down this road, I, I can't do it from Chicago. And that's when I got on a plane and, and went out to L.A. Chester Himes, uh, he, was, he was dead by the time you optioned his book. Am I right? Yes, he was. Yeah, he was an expat. He had moved to Paris in the, I think, the 50s and lived his life there and they loved him over there he was kind of one of these you know american uh you know primitives i guess uh who was more celebrated in europe uh, than he was at home yeah a uh, great writer in my humble opinion uh, cotton comes to harlem just pops into my mind yeah. and uh, there was a movie made in the 60s or 70s Yep. I love that movie. I actually rented it not too long ago. Uh, so how did you get the rights to Chester Himes' book? I'm fascinated <laughs> by that even more than I am about the Queen's Gambit. <laughs> wow. Uh, I went to New York and I tracked down the woman who was the agent for his estate. And um, uh, there was a fantastic uh, short film that had been made in Chicago it was called Honky Tonk Bud. Uh, a man named Scott Laster had directed it. It was one of these toast poems, like like very early rap. Uh, and this actor named John Tolis Bay, who was just a beautiful guy, super creative, talented guy, you know, kind of also looking for his break. And he played Honky Tonk Bud in this short. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, Ed Wilkerson did the music for it. So I kind of walked in with that and said, you know, John's a friend of mine and we want to do a Himes project. And, you know, we're looking at Rage and Harlem and he would write the script. And, um, you know, we were newbies, but that also was kind of appealing to her, honestly. Like we brought a lot of passion and energy to it. Um, and, you know, it was, I think, a thousand dollar option, which was way way more money than i had at the time but you know in the grand scheme of things it, it wasn't you know a hugely expensive thing to endeavor uh john wrote the script on spec and he did a really good job and uh, it just made its way through uh some you know hustling and cold calling and uh, a few hands of people that i knew out in l.a uh, and ultimately got into the hands of people who wanted to make it. Wow. Uh, and uh, you mentioned Harvey Weinstein. I cannot let that one pass. <laughs> uh, uh, what were your encounters with Harvey Weinstein like? Well, on Rachel Harlem, he was uh, the new kid on the block. You know, Miramax was um, coming out in the 80s and really reinventing uh the marketplace for independent film and um you know uh very very aggressive and uh clever marketing guys uh you know that neil jordan movie what was that called uh crying, crying game, game yeah. yeah i mean they, you know they really took some shots uh backed a lot of interesting filmmakers and you know that's when that whole 
uh, that whole business was blowing up. You know, there, there wasn't the kind of specialty film landscape or art houses or smart houses as they became. Um, but, you know, he you know, and, and other people really uh, pioneered and created that business. Um, you know, he was always a chain smoking, uh, diet coke sucking, um, super intense guy. Um, but uh, I did make, you know, probably five or six movies at various points in my career that Miramax uh, were part of and part of um, distributing. So, yeah, I, I was around. <laughs> did, did you actually have to make pitches directly to Harvey himself? Sometimes, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, the, the thing that really got me in business with him more than anything was um, just kind of jumping ahead a little bit. Uh, but, you know, when I left Paramount, uh, I was an executive there for five years. I went to work for Sidney Pollack, the great uh, director, uh, producer, actor. You know, he was really one of the most important people in my life and my career. And one of the things that Sidney did that he actually doesn't get a lot of credit for because uh, it was more behind the scenes, but he really saved the English patient uh, and um, helped to rescue that movie when it was abandoned by 20th Century Fox uh, while it was in pre-production. And because we were friends with Anthony Minghella and Sydney had a lot of respect for Saul Zantz. Sorry, my son is sharpening his pencil. Here. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like one of my editors. That's how they edit my copy, just like that. <laughs> Let me say that again. Um, so, you know, Sydney had a lot of respect for Saul Zantz, and he loved Anthony, and he liked the project. And, um, you know, they were really uh, left, sh you know, short. They were in pre-production in Italy. And Pollock uh, was able to convince Harvey to come in at the last minute and finance that film. And out of that tremendous success for Minghella, yeah, we... You know, ended up making his his next two movies. We did the talented Mr. Ripley with Anthony, and then we did uh, Cold Mountain with Anthony. And Harvey was involved in in each of those. He he partnered with Paramount on Ripley, and he partnered with UA on Cold Mountain. But they dropped out right before we started shooting, so he ended up fully financing one of the biggest films that uh, Miramax had ever made. You know, I have to make a confession here. I, I'm a big moviegoer, as you could probably tell. And uh, Miramax and Harvey Weinstein's name appear on many movies that I love. And now when I see them, Bill, I have this confession here I'm opening up to. Don't, I just met you. I get a little embarrassed that, like, oh, I can't believe. I think Pulp Fiction was one. I, uh, I really love this movie. Or even Jackie Brown. I think he may have done Jackie Brown as well, which is one of my favorite did, Tarantino movies. Yeah, I mean, and, it's a very, very tough uh, legacy, you know. I mean, uh, uh, all of us who uh, cross paths with him 
you know, knew him to be a bully and knew him to be uh, a monster in a certain way in terms of how he conducted himself in business and how he treated the people who worked for him. Uh, obviously, other people uh, knew more about him than certainly I did. Um, so, you know, it was a, a horrible thing to, you know, f have these revelations buried for as long as they were, uh, and then to have them come out um, and, you know, feel like uh, there's no amount of soap in the world that's going to, you know, uh, clean my hands enough. Um, you know, you just look back and go, God, what could I have known something? Should I have known something? And um, yeah, it's very uncomfortable. Yeah, it's even uncomfortable for me who watched the movies. Like, uh, I know I had nothing to do with it, but I was a fan of these movies. You mentioned Paramount a couple times. I just can't let that pass. What did you do for Paramount? Well, I joined Paramount as a creative executive, uh, which is kind of the low let's say entry level position in the production department in the feature film uh, side of the company uh, that was early in 1987 uh, just to bring people back into the mood of that era you know that was uh, Eddie Murphy was uh, king of Hollywood uh, John Hughes was another you know uh, emperor uh, Simpson and Bruckheimer um, Paramount was certainly one of the uh, flagship, you know, premier studios in the business, you know, one of the original studios. Uh, so that was uh, amazing for me. I I'd never really had a job per se because I'd been working for myself uh, up till then. So to step across the desk and step into a corporate uh, environment and uh, into the game at that level, um, you know, it was just an incredible uh, grad school education for me. And, you know, I, I was really lucky to work with some people that, you know, became lifelong friends and, and mentors to me in the business. A wonderful, wonderful woman named Lindsay Duran, who is kind of a secret but a legend to people who, who know her in Hollywood. Um, a longtime executive and producer and script doctor and uh, Oscar winner. You know, she produced Sense and Sensibility. She was a senior executive who kind of took me under her wing. Uh, Ned Tannen was running the studio at that time. He was a legend. And, uh, you know, his things, you know, some of these things stay with you for life. And he would say, Horberg, it's better to be lucky than smart in this business. Remember that. Mm -hmm. And well, he'd he's right. say, uh, we're not curing cancer. We got one job. It's to put asses in seats. We're a delivery system for asses and seats. <laughs> so, you know, for a kid coming in from the street, you know, I was like, uh, you know, uh, at the at the foot of masters. <laughs> Uh, By the way, do you buy that line? Do you buy it? We're not curing cancer. We're here to put asses <laughs> in seats. Is that, has that become like a prevailing theory in your life? <laughs> well, I think it goes to, are you making movies for an audience or for yourself? You know, and I'm kind of from the school of, 
making the movies for an audience, trying to satisfy the audience, trying to figure out uh, how to tell stories to kind of maximize their uh, entertainment and to be the best version of themselves they can be and uh, to, you know, uh, earn people's interest and, and hold their interest. Um, so, yeah, I, I like, you know, screening films. <laughs> I mean, some people hate that, but I, I like uh, the editorial process and kind of the way the film interacts with audiences and, you know, hearing smart people talk about what they, uh, what's clear to them, what's not, you know, what's confusing, what's satisfying. Um, uh, I'll tell you a quick story, Ben. The first year I was at Paramount, it was the, so many firsts for me. And, and one of the firsts was the first time I ever went to a kind of studio audience research screening. And it happened to be the screening for Adrian Lyne's Fatal Attraction, which in Hollywood lore is one of the most famous uh, examples of a film that was made uh, impeccably, beautifully written, directed, great cast, you know, Michael Douglas, Glenn Close, uh, you know, kind of all aiming for Oscar uh, accolades, really. And we screened it in this theater in Hollywood, and the movie was just playing like gangbusters until the third act. And the whole audience just turned against the movie in the most shocking and vocal way and looks i had never been at one of these events before and the directors sitting there and the producers and the head of the studio and the marketing guy and you could just see the blood you know draining from everybody's face and i'm going wow this this thing is really going pear-shaped you know <laughs> like what is going to happen here and it was such an incredible lesson to me because you know it, it was really a disaster the audience just uh, en masse had kind of rejected uh, really one of the anchor story points of the movie, which was, you know, it was all Madame Butterfly music and it was Glenn Close killing herself um, kind of in her madness and as the culmination of this, you know, uh, kind of metaphorical tale of, you know, sexual transgression. Um, and they just didn't want that. You know, they saw it as a monster movie. And they said, look, a monster movie, the monster doesn't commit suicide. You know, there has to be a hero that slays the monster. And they didn't say that, but that was what was clear from all of the cards and all the comments and the focus groups. And it just was not the movie that anybody who signed up for it thought they were making. And so they said, no, we're not doing it. And it ended up in this dance over several months. Uh, and Ned Tannen and uh, probably Barry London and Sid Gannis, the heads of the studio, Frank Mancuso, they kind of one by one just convinced uh, the various parties that they had to, you know, uh, satisfy the audience's narrative demand you know that it was just bigger than the movie really uh and they got a writer and wrote new ending and ultimately got them to shoot it and you know nobody was super happy about it but they cut the new ending into the movie and it you know was uh, night and day it was just uh, 
people were going out of their minds at the end of the movie. And it became one of the most successful pictures of the decade. Um, so, yeah, that was like uh, a front row seat <laughs> at uh, a really interesting lesson in kind of narrative for me, you know, like what are the demands of narrative? God, just think, I'm just thinking about this, listening to that story. The person's job to bring everybody back to talk about like Michael Douglas he's moving on to other things this, oh, this is not the only movie he does you know <laughs> that boat sail buddy you know someone's got to call his agent you know what I'm saying Bill and say uh, you know we didn't really like the ending of that movie uh, one day we only need him for one day you know? no, no, this was a master class in I, I don't want to call it manipulation that's too pejorative but the skill that it took, it was like a lifetime of experience in a, you know, guy who'd been at the top of the business for 30, 40 years uh, to make that happen. You know, I mean, uh, Sherry Lansing and Stanley Jaffe were two of the biggest, most successful producers on the lot. Adrian Lyne uh, directed Flashdance, one of their biggest hits. Michael Douglas, huge star, Glenn Close. You know, all the agents involved, Michael Ovitz, and uh, you just can't imagine. And so it, it was really mind-blowing for me um, uh, to be kind of in the inner sanctum of that world. You know, I, I was kind of in the room after the doors closed, and you could, you know, hear what the, the leaders, you know, thought about uh, how they needed to uh, finesse this. Have you ever... Uh, been the person to tell the director, you know, Billy Bob, you got to change this. This isn't working. We're going to die. If they put the, have you ever had to be that guy that said that? Yeah, many times, Ben. Many times. It's a, a very, very uh, key part of the job of producing is the producer-director relationship. And, you know, it, it has a built-in uh, tension to it and a built-in conflict in a way because the producer's job is just to make the best possible, I mean, the director's job is to make the best movie he can. And, you know, uh, the producer, of course, wants the same, but he's got to manage the process in the box of uh, time and money and, you know, resources. And uh, those things kind of inevitably come into conflict and, um you know, every film is its own unique business and every director has comes from a very unique place of experience, of preoccupation, of um, process. Uh, they're all just so different, you know. So it's very different if you're making a film with a first-time director and you've made 40 movies and you're trying to guide the person, you know, home safely. Or, you know, if you're dealing with a final cut director, you know, who's made more movies than you, and, you know, you've got to uh, figure out how to uh, approach it knowing that he's got the veto power, you know, but you still need to try to get him to act in his own, what you believe is his own self-interest and in the best interest of the movie. And, um, you know, it's, it's part... Uh, art and part science, you know, and 
I mean, look, Ripley had a disastrous first preview uh, up in the Bay Area. It, 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 I mean, it was really like people were walking out. <laughs> and, uh, man, we didn't see that coming. You know, the studio loved the movie, and they were so confident in it. And we had Matt Damon and Gwyneth Paltrow and Kate uh, Blanchett. But the audience just wasn't prepared for what the movie was. And, you know, in these situations, there haven't been any reviews. There's no kind of advanced knowledge necessarily of what they're coming in for. And I think they thought this is some kind of Matt Damon, Gwyneth Paltrow love story. <laughs> and when the, when the oar came down on Jude Law's head, it came down on the audience's head. <laughs> and they were like, what fucking movie am I in? <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Yeah. And, you know, once some people get up and start walking out, it changes the whole dynamic of the room in a, a very unpleasant way. Uh, all right, we're almost out of time here, so I'm going to make a, a confession and then seek uh, some kind of uh, solution from you. I tend to fall in love with shows, I fall in love with them passionately, and then when they're over, I miss them. It's like a book. I'll read a book, and I well, I don't want it to end because I'm really enjoying this book. And then what am I going to do when it's over? So I felt that way for Queen's Gambit, and I felt that way. There was a, another series I talk a lot about on the show, which very few people I know have seen. It's called uh, Call My Agent. It's a French thing. I fell in love with that one, and I had them back-to-back, -back, Bill. I'm sharing my <laughs> innermost feelings with you here. And back-to-back, -back, I was in love. I've not been in love since. <laughs> I'm not in love with that. I'm here in a pandemic. There's nothing to do but spend my nights watching TV. So give me, let's close a recommendation. Uh, the next series that I will fall in love with and be thanking you for years to come. What will that be? Well, I'm going to go in a different direction, Ben, and I'm going to plug my next movie. Okay. <laughs> so I have uh, finished a movie that's another 17-year odyssey to to get in the can uh it's called flag day it is directed by and starring sean penn and his own daughter dylan penn and it is another adaptation it's a memoir a good friend of mine jennifer vogel wrote uh, up in minneapolis it's a father-daughter story and it's really somehow like the last great independent movie meaning it has a real 70s uh, vibe to it we shot it on film um, it's a road trip story it actually takes place from the late 70s to the mid 90s uh, Sean is incredible in it but it's really his daughter's movie and uh, Dylan Penn you know is Robin Wright's daughter and uh, so she's got the genes and she crushes the performance in this uh, in this COVID world you know we're kind of sitting here right now uh, you know wondering about 2021 and how this is going to come into the world uh, we're hoping to be invited to Cannes we're hoping there is a Cannes we're hoping it's uh, in real life and not virtual uh, and that it will set up to come out probably in the fall of 2021. Uh, but I think if you loved Queen's Gambit, I'm going to go out on a limb and say uh, you'll like this. It's, it's got nothing to do with Queen's Gambit, but it has it, the same kind of integrity in terms of uh, its emotions, its truth, 
uh, it's a little bit more political, uh, not in an overt way, but just in a kind of look at uh, middle America over the last, you know, several, uh, last couple decades of the 20th century. And um, so that's uh, your next lover. Okay. Well, I just want to say I, I tend to watch it. Flag Day, uh, Sean Penn, Dylan Penn. I just want to say, say one, make one observation. You're really leaving me hanging. I mean, it's December. <laughs> I got to go without. I got to go all the way to September without falling in love with something. I know. Uh, think of all the love you've had. <laughs> well, you've you named it, Ben. You know, kind of. Don't be greedy. <laughs> I I, uh, I think I'll. T- <laughs> I think I'll just go rewatch Cooley High a million times. You mentioned Cooley High. <laughs> I love Cooley High. It's in my top five all-time favorite movies oh, made great. in the city of Chicago. You and, are a man after my own heart. Oh, a dear great. friend of mine is in Cooley High, Rick Stone. So, Rick, oh, if you're yeah. listening, shout out to you. Uh, we'll close with this. Uh, in your humble opinion, is Mel Brooks' movie The Producer an accurate uh, depiction of the life of, of a producer? Go. It's too tame. <laughs> it's, it's too tame. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the producer's life is, it's such a spectrum, you know, and uh, you, I've traveled all over the world. I've worked with incredible people. I've got to, you know, meet uh, artists that I, deeply deeply admire and respect and i've been in some of the craziest rooms that you could ever sit in and heard some of the the wildest uh statements i've been in you know life-threatening situations i've certainly been in uh ego you know uh the size of the empire state building uh, situations uh you know i've been in rooms where people talk about themselves in the third person which is always you know, a little bit scary, um, but uh, yeah, I mean it's it's been an incredible uh, ride for me, and uh, hopefully I got a few uh, a few things left in me uh, to 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 bring to you to fall in love in. All right, very good. Well, I'll have to hold off for Flag Day to next, next September to fall in love. I'm sure something will capture yeah, my I don't heart. Want to hear, I don't want to hear you've been dating somebody. <laughs> no, I'm happily married, man. It's it's a, it's like a metaphorical falling in love, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, all right, Bill, thank you very much, and I appreciate it. One more time, Joan, thank you for setting this up. Uh, we may drag Bill back uh, in a couple months at Oscar time uh, to get him on to talk about uh, the movies uh, that are up for those awards, uh, whether he wants to or not, we'll drag him back. Bill, <laughs> Ben, anytime. And yep, my heart's in Chicago. And uh, thanks for having me on. All right, that's Bill Horberg. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everyone. <laughs>